What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Tuesday. I hope everyone had an amazing weekend watching the Super Bowl and hanging out with your family and friends. We got two topics to talk about today. First off, I want to do a Super Bowl recap. I'm going to give you guys some winners from the weekend and some losers from the weekend. We'll go through all the details, including who I thought had a great weekend and, again, who I thought didn't. Number two, we're going to be talking about this new sports streaming service that popped up last week. You guys probably saw it on Tuesday, a deal between ESPN. Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery was announced for this new what we'll call like sports only streaming service. So I'll talk you through the details and whether I think it is a good idea or a bad idea. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So let's get right into it. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards, whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room. I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, Earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding, as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day. You're wet. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, so let's start with the Super Bowl. First and foremost, I think the Super Bowl was awesome this year. I mean, it was an incredible game, a little bit low scoring in the first half, more offense in the second half. Over time, we had a little bit of a conflict with who should receive and who shouldn't. And it was just a great game. Walk-off touchdown in Las Vegas, first ever Super Bowl there. Awesome, 10 out of 10, thought it was a great game. But I want to give you guys some winners and losers from the weekend. So let's start with the winners. My number one winner is CBS. I think CBS did an awesome job broadcasting this game. I talked about it last week and several times over Twitter uh, over the last couple of weeks. They put a ton of resources into this game. They had 165 different cameras. They had some really cool different camera angles on the McCaffrey touchdown. They had one that was going on the uh, on the rope on the sideline that basically showed like a completely different angle of it. And you could really see how fast McCaffrey accelerated. It was an awesome angle that you typically don't see. And it was even better since it was in the Super Bowl on a trick play to score a touchdown. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. The other angle that was really cool was the doink cameras inside of the uprights. Now, these obviously didn't get used that much. But there was a lot of work that went into this. The Athletic posted an article last week talking about the entire process. If you're interested in learning more about how these things get set up, I recommend reading it. But essentially, the TLDR is that CBS executives, uh, after last year's Super Bowl, when Bucker kicked one off the uprights, immediately texted each other and were like, hey, we should put a camera in the uprights for next year's Super Bowl. And that's exactly what they did. They worked with the company to fully customize these uprights to put these 4K cameras in them. I believe there was six three in each upright, one on the side, and then one on the middle. And what they did is they tested them in the preseason, then they tested them in the regular season, and they used them for the Super Bowl. The best moment that they had was probably actually in pregame warmups when they introduced them. 
because I think it was Bucker kicked one off of them, right? So the Doink camera was like perfect and you were able to see it. Now they got used a couple times throughout the broadcast, but this is just like another one of those things that when you innovate on these things, it seems a little bit weird at first. It seems unnecessary, but then it becomes like a legitimate thing that gets used all the time. The pylon camera is a great example of this. When the pylon camera first came out, no one really thought it was going to be used all that much. It wasn't really that great. And now it's awesome because you can see straight down the goal line exactly what's happening. And I mean, if you look about the AFC Championship game a couple of weeks ago, when Legereus D knocked that ball out of Zay Flowers' hands on the goal line, that was the pylon camera. It gave us the best angle. And these are things that are continuing to get better and better and better. So kudos to CBS for, for pushing the envelope a little bit and building out the broadcast from here. I think it's going to continue to get better and better. But outside of innovation on the broadcasting side, CBS just made a ton of money, and that's why they're also a winner from this weekend. If you think about Super Bowl advertising in general, it's no secret, obviously, brands were paying $7 million for 30-second commercials this game. Now, there's a little bit of nuance behind this that typically gets lost in the headline number of, oh, $7 million. And the nuance is that, obviously, not every brand is paying $7 million. Commercials in pregame cost less. Commercials in the first quarter cost less. Commercials after the game cost less. Commercials in overtime cost less. Essentially, what you're trying to do is you're trying to time up the commercials with the peak viewership. Now, this doesn't always work, and that's not necessarily how the deals are sold. But at the end of the day, what happens is some brands pay less and some brands pay more. The most expensive that brands were paying were up to $7 million. I believe the average commercial this year was sold for just over $6 million. So still a tremendous amount of money. And when you add all of that up, it's expected that given Fox took home over $600 million in ad revenue from the Super Bowl alone last year, my guess is that CBS probably topped it this year considering the game went into overtime. Now, a lot of these slots are sold beforehand. They have contingency plans in place if the Super Bowl does go into overtime. So those commercials were not free. They were probably at a discount because of the viewership that was attached to the game at that point. But ultimately, what happened was CBS made more money than they were expecting. That's awesome. That's great for them. And it's part of the reason why they pay the NFL $2.1 billion a year for their package. The Super Bowl is a huge part of that. And there's a reason why every network wants a piece of it from Fox to CBS, and eventually to ESPN and ABC as well. So kudos to CBS, great broadcast for them, amazing weekend. I'm sure their partners and their executives are very happy. Next up on the winner's list is Mahomes. I mean, Patrick Mahomes, what can you say about this guy? People were asking me before the game who I thought was going to win. And I said, if you look at the rosters, I think the 49ers are probably better at every position, right? And I'm not you know, a football analyst by any means. I'm not going to go on NFL Live and dissect plays for you guys. But it was fairly apparent to me that the 49ers have a great roster. They're a really good team, and there's a reason why they were there. But the one caveat to all of that for me, and I told this to people, was I will never bet against Patrick Mahomes. I mean, this guy is absolutely unbelievable. Whether you like him, whether you hate him, he's an amazing football player on his way to becoming one of the best that we've ever seen. He's a two-time NFL MVP, two-time first-team All-Pro. He's been a starter for six years. He's made six straight AFC Championship games. So every year that he's a starter, you can book it. He's in the AFC Championship game. He's got three Super Bowl championships now, three Super Bowl MVPs. Now, the reason why I call Mahomes a winner is obviously he's going to Disneyland, Super Bowl MVP, good for the brand, making more money, all that stuff. Amazing. Legacy intact. Great for him. Obviously a winner when all of this comes out. But what I would say about Mahomes, and I wrote this a few years ago, I said, I think that Mahomes, out of any athlete today, is on the trajectory to becoming a billionaire. And the reason I said that was because, one, he's having immense success at a young age. 
He's 28 years old, and we're already comparing him to Tom Brady. He's 28 years old, three-time Super Bowl champ, three-time Super Bowl MVP, best player in the NFL by fall. People were comparing him to Michael Jordan last night. So on the field, that success is a key component. You cannot make a ton of money in sports without being successful on the field, on the court, on the pitch, whatever you want to call it. The next thing is, though, he's investing his money in building his brand really, really well. Mahomes, more than anyone, has really smart people around him, from his agent to his manager to his marketing people. He works with an incredible team of people that have led him and advised him to do really intelligent things with his brand and with his money. And I can give you guys a few examples of this. I mean, his endorsement list is too long to talk about, obviously. We're talking about Adidas, Oakley, Bose, all these different companies sponsor him, pay him tens of millions of dollars annually. But then he takes that money, and rather than spending it or buying property or doing all these other different things, in most cases, he's invested in. He has ownership stakes in teams. We're talking about the Kansas City Royals in Major League Baseball. We're talking about sporting Kansas City in Major League Soccer. We're talking about the Kansas City Current in the NWSL. He became a minority shareholder along with Travis Kelsey in the Alpine Formula One team last year. He owns Whataburger franchises. He's an investor in Whoop and Hyperice and all these other different companies. I mean, this guy is investing his money. I also think that some of these brands are going to eventually build lines out around him, right? He's approaching 30 years old. He's at the height of his game. Football is more popular than ever in the United States, and it's growing internationally. He is going to be the face of all of that. And I think that last night was another step in that direction for Mahomes. And like I said several years ago, it was probably two, three years ago at this point, I think him more than anyone else out of the young crop of athletes in the US today is on pace to become a billionaire. He has a $500 million contract. He's going to get a raise at some point. He's the first quarterback, I believe, in history to win a Super Bowl when commanding a certain percentage of the salary cap. I mean, it just doesn't happen anymore. If you think about the 49ers, Brock Purdy, he's making $850,000 a year. And that was a huge reason why the 49ers were able to get here. I mean, think about Kyle Shanahan's incentives. If you look at uh, Trey Lance, who was a top, whatever, three pick in the draft, he's making a boatload of money. Even though he's on a rookie contract, they still had a commitment to him. So if you're able to not only have Jimmy G off the books or another high-profile quarterback, but you're able to get your first-round quarterback off the books as well and put a guy like Brock Purdy in there who's making $850,000 and essentially takes up nothing out of your salary cap, that's amazing. Now, the reason why I think that the 49ers could be back here next year as well is because there's this, this secret about the CBA in the NFL today. And the secret is that it was changed a few years ago. Now the seventh-round picks, they cannot negotiate a new contract until I believe it's like their third year or their fourth year, whatever it is. But it's one more additional year for Brock Purdy. And the reason why that's important is because he's not going to get a raise this offseason. He's going to be making still less than a million bucks next year, which places him somewhere between the 40th and the 50th highest-paid quarterback in the NFL today. Obviously, that means there's uh, backup quarterbacks making more money than Brock Purdy, which is an important point when we discuss all this stuff. So again, a little bit unfortunate for Brock Purdy. He'll end up getting his payday and making tons of money, I'm sure. But the 49ers will have him on a really, really, really team-friendly contract next year as well, and they'll have a good chance of getting back. But again, history tells us Patrick Mahomes is going to find himself in the AFC Championship game again. If he's able to win it, make it to the Super Bowl, I'm not going to be betting against him. Another great week for Mahomes, and he's another reason why he was a big winner from the Super Bowl. The third winner is Las Vegas. I mean, if you think about Las Vegas over the last few years, it's been absolutely insane to see the transformation. I mean, Las Vegas was this place where it's been well-documented. Professional athletes were not allowed to go there, essentially. They stopped Tony Romo from going to a fantasy football conference there. People weren't in front office, weren't allowed to play fantasy football themselves. Vegas was seen as this like black hole that leagues just didn't really like because it was known for gambling and all of those other things. 
And what's happened over the last few years since PASPA was repealed in 2018, and essentially for those that don't know, PASPA being repealed essentially just made it legal for individual states to legalize online or mobile sports betting. And what's happened is now that all these other states are doing it and they're legalizing and all these other businesses like DraftKings and FanDuel and BetMGM and ESPN Bet and all these other people are doing endorsements and, and broadcasting it and spending money with the leagues, is Vegas has become this destination for sports now. And it's kind of perfect for it. If you think about sports in Las Vegas, it's transformed over the last few years. They got an NFL team with the Raiders. They should have a baseball team, you know, if everything goes well with the transition there with the athletics. They have a hockey team, which is tremendous, won the Stanley Cup. Uh, they have a WNBA team in the Aces. They had Formula One come visit. They have a bunch of other uh, things going on there too. And Allegiant Stadium is now this, this like sticking point in the ground where I believe that the Super Bowl went so well this year in Las Vegas, you know, sense traffic and all these other things that people are always going to complain about. But I think that the Super Bowl went so well and NFL executives were so happy with it that they're now going to put Las Vegas on the list of the regular rotation cities that continuously get Super Bowls. Now, this list is no secret. You just look at the, the cities that have most hosted the Super Bowl. One would be New Orleans. We haven't played there since 2013, but they're going back there next year. That's a place, I believe it's their 11th Super Bowl. They're going to continue to get Super Bowls. It's one of the NFL's favorite cities to host in. Another one would be LA. SoFi Stadium is absolutely incredible. One of the nicest stadiums in the world. The Super Bowl there was also great between the Rams and the Bengals, and another reason why the NFL will continue to bring games back there. Miami's another one, and I think Las Vegas is now in that sphere of cities that are going to continuously host Super Bowls going forward. So Las Vegas, big, 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 big winner from this past week, and I think they showed off that they can handle a Super Bowl like this, and they're going to get more games in the future. Because Allegiant Stadium was awesome. It was a great game. The broadcast was awesome. The players obviously love celebrating in Las Vegas afterwards. And I think they welcome another Super Bowl back there in the near future. And the last winner is the field. I mean, it seems kind of silly to talk about the field after the game and call it a winner. But no news is good news about the field. And if you notice during the broadcast, there was no conversation about the field. There was no conversation about player slipping outside of Dre Greenlaw, which I would argue wasn't necessarily the field's fault. It was kind of this freak incident of him trying to jog onto the field. Injuries happen. It sucks. I get it. But the field, by all accounts, was great. The players raved about it in pregame. They said it felt fine. They all wear their normal cleats. They weren't wearing you know, the, the, the cleats that they wore last year because the field was slippery. So that's great. And there was no complaints. So by all accounts, the field was great. Really good for the NFL after last year. It was a disaster of a field. And the reason why I want to call them a winner is because the NFL took notice. Obviously, people were talking about it last year. And right after the game, the NFL started blaming people. And they said it wasn't that big of a deal. And there was just a couple things they needed to clean up. But behind the scenes, they really invested a lot of time money and resources into this year's field. For example, the NFL promoted uh, Nick Pappas is his name to basically run the show in Las Vegas this year. They had a whole new team of people running it and they did a really good job. What they did is they spent over a year growing this sod in this grass at a sod farm in California. They transported to Allegiant City and they spent over a million dollars to install this field from scratch. They ripped up the pre-existing field, the existing field at Allegiant Stadium, put this new grass in, painted it, got it ready. They worked on it for more than a month. The team was staying in Las Vegas working on this field. And they did a really good job. They ended up leaving it outside for an extra 24 or 48 hours more than last year. And I don't think they watered it as much as they did the year prior. The problem with the field the year prior was that they watered it right before they brought it inside. And the type of grass that it was couldn't couldn't dry off. So Allegiant Stadium had a couple things that helped. They had these heaters uh, underneath the field tray. They were using blankets. They had these robotic things that were basically testing out the surface with cleat-like uh, interfaces. So there was a bunch of different things that were going on. But again, it's a winner because no one was talking about it. 
right? If it was being talked about, it would be a loser. But sometimes the best noise is no noise. And the fact that it wasn't being talked about is a good thing for the NFL. So those are the winners. We're talking CBS, Mahomes, Las Vegas, the field, et cetera. Now, there was two losers in my mind. Number one, let's start with the Super Bowl field. I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. And the unfortunate part about this to me is that the Super Bowl is this event that has just completely disconnected itself from reality with the average fan. If you think about the best events in sports today or the championships, I've been to uh, playoff baseball games, World Series, et cetera. And those games are legitimately fun. When I used to live in New York, I'd go to playoff games for the Yankees all the time. When they're winning, even when they're not winning, those games have an atmosphere that is unbeatable. It's absolutely incredible, and it's awesome. It's not corporate at all, and people are loving it. It's because while you're paying a, a, a pretty penny to get into that game, you're not being priced out, and not everything is contingent on sponsors getting their way. Same thing with the NBA Finals and other competitions like that, the World Cup Final, other things like that. It's, it revolves around the sport and the culture of the sport. And the conversation that I was having yesterday is that the Super Bowl has completely changed that. And I tweeted about this, and I said, there's nothing that's monetized like the Super Bowl. And some people took that as in, like, I'm bragging. And actually, I would argue it's a terrible thing, right? It sucks that the cheapest ticket on the secondary market to attend this game was like $8,000. That sucks. Imagine if you're a dad or a mom, and you want to bring your kids to the game. You have two, three kids, and you want to go. You're looking at tickets on the secondary market that are $25,000 collectively. That is unaffordable for 99% of the country. And it's super unfortunate because if you're a 49ers fan or a Chiefs fan or God forbid a Lions fan, if they would have made it to the Super Bowl and you can't go to any other Super Bowls because your team's never in it, you're going to spend that money. And it sucks. It's unfortunate. It sucks. And the problem with this is that the NFL has continuously catered towards corporate clients. And now the feeling of the Super Bowl is completely disconnected from the feeling of an AFC championship game or an NFC championship game, which take place at these teams' home stadiums. I've experienced this firsthand. When I was fortunate to go to the Super Bowl a few years ago at SoFi Stadium between the Rams and the Bengals, it shocked me how corporate feeling it was. In fact, the place where I was sitting, the fans were more engaged with the halftime show that year, which was you know Dr. Dre, Eminem, Snoop Dogg, all those people, than they were a lot during the game. And this was a close game. It came down to the final minutes. It was an important game, obviously, with the Super Bowl, but it was a good game, as a matter of fact. And there were people that just could care less to be there necessarily. I mean, we've seen videos coming out from last night's Super Bowl or two nights ago Super Bowl of fans playing video games in the stands on their phone, right? That's obviously not the normal, but you guys get the point. A lot of these tickets are going to people that are not necessarily fans of the team, or in some cases, not even fans of football or the NFL in general. It's become this celebrity sighting place where you're paying top dollar, there's private jets rolling in, the hotel rooms are $2,000, and the tickets are $8,000. It sucks. I hate it. I wish it was going to get better. I don't think it's going to. We'll have to deal with it, but I wish the NFL would figure out a way to allow more regular fans to attend these games because it changes the atmosphere and it completely changes the environment around the game. Until then, I'll probably be watching from home. I had a great time at the Super Bowl the year that I went, but unless the Giants are in it, I really don't see a need to go back and I'm not going to be rushing to spend $8,000 on a ticket to make sure I do for a team that is not my team. That's why the Super Bowl in general is a loser outside of the game being awesome because the atmosphere itself needs to improve. But the other loser is, unfortunately, Tony Romo. Now, look, I've been harsh on Tony Romo in the past, but I think he's genuinely a great guy. I think he's awesome. He comes from really humble beginnings. I heard a story from my friend, uh, Graham Bensinger, the other day that Tony Romo's parents, his dad was making $500 a month when he was uh, in the military. Tony Romo grew up in a really small house. He grew up without money. He's now making $17.5 million a year broadcasting football games. It's an absolutely incredible story. 
I like him a lot. And I think part of the reason why Tony Romo has been so successful and gotten that contract is because he seems like a normal guy in the booth. It seems like someone that you or I would want to hang out with, right? He just seems like he's having fun talking. He loves life. He gets along with everyone. It's great. I think he's an awesome dude. And I would also say that I don't normally care about broadcasting in general. I think that it's so overrated. The amount of people now that rate and review broadcasters has gotten completely out of hand. It's so ridiculously overrated, especially for a sport like the NFL. If you took Tony Romo out of there or Jim Nance out of there and replaced them with two other people that were mediocre at their job, the ratings would not change. I promise you. Maybe plus or minus a couple hundred thousand, but ultimately no one is watching it for them. And the best broadcasters are not noticed at all, similar to what I was talking about with the field. But the reason why Tony Romo ends up on the loser list from the Super Bowl is because he just he did a couple things where I think if CBS told him, hey, man, let's let's just like tone this down a little bit and talk maybe 10% less, he'd be much better off. And I'll give you guys a couple specific examples here. Number one, and the most egregious thing to me was at the end of the game. They score a touchdown to win the game in overtime, to win the Super Bowl Kansas City. And Jim Nance nails it. I mean, he yells, jackpot Kansas City, right? Jackpot Kansas City wins the Super Bowl. And it's awesome in Las Vegas. Totally get the comparison there. It was a great call. But then instead of the moment just soaking in, we're now we're not looking at a replay of the game. We see the touchdown. They start panning to the coaches. They pan to the players. They pan to the crowd. We have not seen a replay yet. And instead of just letting the moment breathe, Tony Romo starts immediately examining the play. He starts reviewing the play and dissecting it. But the problem was he's now talking over the moment and we're not even watching the play again. So no one knows what he's talking about because we're watching the coaches and we're watching the players celebrate. We're not watching a replay. So it was, it was totally essentially irrelevant to the moment. So that was one thing. The two other things that I'll mention really weren't that big of a deal. They were kind of lighthearted and fun, but things that you notice. And again, like I said, things that you notice from a broadcaster are not good. The best broadcasters, I sit there, I watch the game, I hear their commentary. I'm like, oh, great. That makes sense. That's awesome. Cool. Watch the game. You don't notice things that they mess up on. But Tony Romo made two kind of silly errors. Number one, at the end of the game, when he was talking about them, uh, potentially trying to get into the playoff or kicking a field goal. He said something along the lines of like, before the play started, he's like, yeah, you try to get this down to six seconds so you can get another playoff. And then they ran the play and the play ended with six seconds left. And he was like, ah, I'd probably kick this one. I need seven seconds. And it was like, well, dude, you just said, you know, six seconds. Now you need seven seconds. That was like 15 seconds ago that you said that. Did you forget it? And maybe he did. Again, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But at the end of the day, it was small and, and viewers noticed it. Another thing that he did was, which was honestly kind of funny, was he was like singing the the uh, the tune as it went to commercial on CBS, which some people got annoyed about online. I saw a number of tweets on, not a big deal in my mind. It's kind of just silly, whatever. He's fun loving and, and people like him because of that. So not the end of the world. But again, I think it's one of those things where Tony Romo has now become a little bit polarizing on the broadcasting side, which isn't good, right? Like y- you don't want people to have a hard feeling about you one way or the other. That's great for Stephen A. Smith. That's great for Shannon Sharp. That's great for Skip Bayless. That's good for the talking heads. But as a broadcaster of the game, you either want to be loved or you want people not to care and not notice you. Tony Romo has gone from the former to now the latter of people noticing him and commenting on his style, which I would argue is not amazing, not great, and probably one of the things that CBS will try to correct uh, over the coming years. Uh, as they try to improve their broadcast booth with him and Jim Nance. Although I will say the one thing that I did love that they did was at the end of the game, they just like professed their love for each other, which was pretty funny. It was Jim Nance was like, ah, I love you, man. Turner was like, ah, I love you too, man. This has been such a fun year. And it was just one of those moments that you, you don't really get from traditional broadcasters. 
But that's enough about the Super Bowl. Next up, we're going to be talking about ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery, new sports-only streaming service. But before we get into it, let's quickly hear from today's sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've probably noticed over the last few years that many more of your family and friends are starting to take therapy more seriously. And it's not just you. I've personally noticed this across my family and friends too. And I think the major reason for this is that they've now noticed that therapy isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is proven to help with other things like communication skills, improving mood, increasing self-awareness, and making your relationships stronger. So if you're thinking about starting therapy today, there's no better place than BetterHelp. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is you go on their website, you fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. They've helped out millions of people with therapy help, and they have 35,000 licensed therapists ready to help you. So visit betterhelp.com slash pomp to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pomp. Okay, so for the second half of this podcast, I want to examine the newly announced sports streaming service, the deal between ESPN Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery. I want to talk about the long-term goal, what I think about it, and why I also don't believe that this solves traditional media's problem. So let's get into it. The easiest way to start this is that there's this saying, many of you probably heard it in business, that there are only two ways to make money. Number one is bundling, and number two is unbundling. And the matter of fact is we are now seeing that play out in real time across sports. We have spent the last decade almost unbundling the cable bundle. And now ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers are going to try to rebundle it through this like sports only package. Now, some of you have probably seen the details already, but I'll just run through kind of the highlights for you so you have what you need. Last Tuesday, it was announced that ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers were teaming up to launch a new sports streaming service this fall. The service will combine their media rights across the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, college football, golf, tennis, soccer, motorsports into one package, offering consumers a sports-only bundle option. So at a very high level, the idea is that all of these companies own a variety of different sports media rights. They're going to combine them into one package. So if you're a sports fan, you just buy that one package and you can watch a lot of sports. You can watch, again, NFL content, NBA, and so forth. The final price on this has not been announced yet. But the expectation is that it's going to be somewhere in between what ESPN Plus costs at $11 a month, but cheaper than YouTube TV at $73. My guess would be around $40 a month, somewhere in the middle, with price eventually escalating as media rights continue to get more expensive. Now, The Athletic is reporting that each of the companies will own one-third of the new streaming service. However, they won't be compensated equally, as the affiliate fees will mirror what each company currently gets on cable. For example, ESPN out of the three will get a higher percentage of the fee distribution because its package on cable is currently much more expensive than anyone else's at $10 a month. Now, there are still a lot of unknowns, though. For starters, CBS has one of the most comprehensive sports packages, including inventory across the NFL, college football, March Madness, the PJ Tour, and the Masters Tournament. Yet, they were not included in this deal meaning sports fans, along with other networks, will still need other platforms to watch all of the sporting events they care about. This will not be a one-stop shop, like some people are going around saying. This agreement also does not include any regional sports networks, presumably because the DOJ antitrust regulators already blocked ESPN from doing a deal with them several years ago. It's also unclear what the total addressable market might be. Now, it's no secret, I've talked about this in the past, a sports-only streaming option could potentially be valuable. But 
if it's only a little bit cheaper than YouTube TV with significantly less inventory, will people still buy it? Instead, this feels like a concentrated effort to compete with tech companies like Apple, Amazon, and Netflix, all of which have invested billions in sports content. We all know cable is on the decline. That's why ESPN has been trying to transition its audience to ESPN Plus over the last five years. And it's why they also plan to release this new, what we'll call flagship direct-to-consumer app next fall, separate from this news. So again, you didn't hear me wrong there. ESPN is now doing this joint venture with their other counterparties in Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery. They also have ESPN Plus, and now they're releasing a third standalone app by themselves uh, direct-to-consumer next fall. But the problem with all of this is they're having to do this because the economics don't make sense. ESPN Plus has plateaued at 25 million subscribers, losing 800,000 subscribers last quarter. And watch time data shows that many people are only signing up for ESPN Plus because it's mandatory to include it as part of a bundled deal with Disney Plus and Hulu. So if you want Hulu and Disney Plus as a package deal, you have to include ESPN Plus as part of that package, whether you watch it for a single or second or not. Hey, does that sound like cable? Yes, it does. The bottom line is that cable bundles have subsidized expensive sports rights for decades. Consumers are subjected to paying that nearly $10 a month affiliate fee on cable for ESPN, whether they watch a single second of it or not. And the business model without that changes. ESPN for context currently makes about half as much per subscriber monthly on ESPN+. Plus. They make about $5.50 per month per subscriber on ESPN+. Plus. That's about half as what they do on traditional cable at $9.50 a month. So the pure unit economics per subscriber is much less attractive on the streaming side versus traditional cable. But if people are leaving cable, what other options do you have, right? It, it puts you between a rock and a hard place. So maybe ESPN thinks joining forces with Fox and Warner Brothers will be a net positive for everyone. It certainly makes a lot of sense for Fox and Warner Brothers. You're already paying a lot of money for these sports rights. Why not go create a package with the behemoth of ESPN? and go get you some extra money without doing too much work otherwise. These companies also often compete against each other for sports rights, ultimately making the final price more expensive because there's more bidders. And they probably won't say this due to concerns from the Department of Justice, but negotiating together could be extremely valuable because they would lower the final price by joining forces to artificially suppress demand. You're essentially taking bidders out of that negotiation, which I don't have to explain to you guys could be valuable. But my argument is that this is a short-term solution to a long-term problem. These streaming services are money pits. Netflix is still the only one that's making any profit. And I'm not convinced that consumers will be excited about signing up for an entirely new product that is essentially just a skinny bundle. It's a smaller set of channels at a slightly discounted price to what you would pay elsewhere. It's important to remember, live sports drive everything. But things like news and reality TV still have incremental value. And many consumers, including myself, are willing to pay a little bit extra to have mostly everything they want in one place, like cable or YouTube TV. The real problem revolves around subsidizing these rights. These TV networks rose to prominence because people who didn't watch sports on cable subsidized the increasingly more expensive sports rights for everyone else to enjoy. Again, I just talked about this earlier. The idea is that if I don't watch ESPN, I'm still paying for ESPN, and therefore I'm subsidizing the rights for everyone else who only wants to watch ESPN. And once you add in the fact that these TV networks also had significantly more reach than anyone else because over 100 million American households had cable at its peak, and it's quite frankly why these sports leagues shied away from the streaming side for so long. But that model is changing. 
rather than relying on an increasingly smaller amount of non-sports fans to subsidize expensive sports rights through cable in the future. Big tech companies like Amazon and Apple, they're just simply inventing a better subsidizing model. They're using profitable businesses like Amazon Prime or Apple services or the iPhone or the MacBook or hardware, whatever you want to call it. Those profitable businesses are now funding the acquisition of what we'll call a loss leader in sports rights. Now, to give you guys some context on just the scope of this, if you added up the cash on hand at Amazon and Apple, that would be equal to $130 billion. Those two companies alone, $130 billion. That's 55 times more than ESPN's $3 billion in operating profit in 2022. That doesn't mean that this shift is going to happen overnight, of course. ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers still own the world's best sports rights. I think that's really important to talk about. If you look at ESPN, they have the best rights package by far. They have inventory across all of these different sports. They have the college football player. They have the NFL. They have everything, right? ESPN has by far and away the best sports package. And if you think about the streaming services, Amazon has Thursday Night Football. But again, that's relatively small in the grand scheme of things. You've got Major League Baseball's uh, package with Apple. You have MLS. You have some smaller things. But they're not going after the big pie, which is the big media packages and the national packages with the NFL or the NBA or these other networks. And I think that's important to recognize here is that these companies, ESPN, Fox, Warner Brothers, even CBS and the others too, they still own the lion's share of the best sports media rights packages. Most of these agreements are also multi-year deals, meaning tech companies couldn't poach them regardless of how much money they offer right now. And that is ultimately the most important thing. But it's also important to remember, Apple didn't spend a decade building the Vision Pro headset to offer you Major League Soccer. These companies have a plan. They know sports rights can be an incredibly valuable part of their ecosystem, and they're spending an inordinate amount of time figuring out a way to subsidize this model through their profitable businesses that will work for decades to come. That's it for today, though, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please do me a favor and leave me a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Let me know what you're enjoying, what I'm doing well, what I can be doing better. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great day, and we'll talk later this week.